Good morning. It is a treat to be with you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Wayne Smith. I am the headmaster at Masters Academy, which is a pre-K-3 through 12th grade Christian school. And we are ready to open come August 17th. Uh, pray for us. Um, we are uh, at a significant enrollment drop which we've been warned. Um, in fact, uh, I'm on a chat group of Christian school leaders across the country, and just about across the board, there's about a 15 to 20% drop uh, for a variety of reasons. And so pray for us, but God is able, and we have a small contingency of students that will be online, but the rest, we actually surveyed our parents and more than 80%. Says we want our kids back at school in the classroom, and so we're excited to get back. Um, so how's 2020 going? <laughs> yeah, 2020. Uh, this morning, um, I know that Pastor Pastor Greg is a great expository preacher. He takes a passage and he dissects it verse by verse, word by word. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, I like to do that. Um, I, I just feel that God hasn't led me to that kind of a message. We are going to be grounded in the Word. And so I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 12, just about five or six verses. Then we've got a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 5 and 7 that we're going to look at. Then Acts chapter 10, if you want to follow me. Uh, okay, so Hebrews 12, Matthew 5, 7. Uh, Acts chapter 10, we're going to come back to Hebrews 12, and then we'll wrap up with Luke 10. So we're kind of going to do this, this buffet uh, scripture passage look this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. By the way, the message, I'm entitling the attractive grace of Jesus. Okay, the attractive grace of Jesus. Verse 1, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Go with me to verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Look again at that phrase in verse 15. See to it. This is, this is a commandment to us. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. 
So I ask you again, how's 2020? <laughs> the last time I was before you, which I really don't remember how long ago that was, maybe a year, I forget. I told you then that uh, my father had contracted cancer and I asked you to pray for him and he responded well to treatment. Um, but it's back. It was in his abdomen, now it's in his neck. Um, I spoke to him yesterday and, and I just pray that you would ask that you would pray for him. I was supposed to go and see him back in June. I had my flight booked. Paid for, was ready to go. And I wasn't able to go and see him. Who do I talk to about that? Who do, who do I call and, and, and deal with about the fact that I cannot go and see my father? 2020 has been a challenging year in many respects. Our school your church, your pastor, our lives. I don't tend to be a pessimist. I tend to be the glass is always half full type of guy. But this has been a tough year. I'm not wishing it away. <laughs> but if 2021 is going to turn the corner, maybe I don't want to hold on to 2020 too tightly. <laughs> And there's a lot at stake, isn't there, this year? There's a lot at stake. This year, more than any other year, we've been pulled and pushed in different directions. How do we stay grounded in our faith? How are we sure that what we believe and what we stand for is going to pass the test of time? So if you hadn't noticed, let me run a few things by you about 2020. It's an election year. And we pulled again between parties and politicians. And there's the Democrats and the Republicans and the Liberals and the Conservatives. And there's posturing and pandering. And, and can we look to our politicians to tell us the truth all the time? And then if you hadn't noticed, there's a virus going around. Who's responsible? Where did it come from? Who do I call about this? Can I stay safe? There's those who wear gloves and masks and those who don't, and those who get mad if we don't or if we do. I walked into a restaurant a couple of weeks ago to take out some food, and someone fussed at me because I wasn't wearing a mask. I confess to you that my response, well, never mind. I was walking down the aisle at Publix the wrong way and someone fussed at me. <laughs> I'm, I wasn't trying to be difficult, I promise you. <laughs> Can we look to our scientists to give us the truth all the time? Are they consistent? There's widespread unrest. There's protests and riots. There's police supporters and police haters. Can our community leaders help us? Are they always objective? And then there's the specter of racism that has come up. And maybe it ought to. 
Maybe it's a conversation we Christians ought to have. How vocal should we be? How vocal should the church be? What is it that we as Christians should, should say about these issues? Some of you are saying, don't go there. <laughs> Some of you are saying, preach it, brother. <laughs> if you do a Google search of Christian leaders and racism, it's all across the board. So where do we turn? Where do we drop our anchor and feel that this is safe ground? The psalmist asks, I look to the hills and where does my help come from? And our response is, no, your help doesn't come from the hills. It doesn't come from human ingenuity. It doesn't come from the scientists. It certainly doesn't come from the politicians, the economy. The psalmist goes on to say, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, fix your eyes on what is unseen and the eternal, not on the temporal. And so where do we turn? There's a simple answer. I'm going to give you the Sunday school answer, the discipleship 101 answer. Where is it that we drop our anchor? Where is it that we look to? Who do we turn to? We turn to Jesus. We turn to his word. We look at his life. We study his word, and when we pulled and pushed, we need to discipline ourselves that we go back to him, go back to his life, go back to his word, and follow him. When Jesus was pushed and pulled, how did he react? When Jesus was challenged about the most pressing things in his day, how did he respond? What would Jesus be doing? <laughs> And what would Jesus be saying in 2020? So let's go back. Let's, let's, let's look at eight things that Jesus told us to do. And let's pretend we're back at school, okay? And I want you to grade yourself. On a scale one to five. Let's have a little bit of fun with this. One, you're doing terribly. Five, you're knocking it out of the park. I mean, you are good. Okay? So gauge yourself, one to five. And we're in Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to pick out a couple of verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. This is number 1 of 8. Blessed are the peacemakers. How are you doing as a peacemaker? Sometimes our natural inclination is that we want to push back, right? We want to fight. <laughs> Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. How are you, how you doing? One terribly, five you're the poster child for peacemaking. Second one, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. How often are you persecuted for righteousness' sake? How often do people criticize you for doing the right thing? For standing for truth? The third one is similar to the second. Blessed are those, this is, this is verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my account. How often has somebody reviled you for something that you stand for when it comes to Christ and his life and his teachings? Verse 39, this is, this is a tough one. 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now Jesus isn't just talking about physically, but he's talking about those insulting comments, that negative word. How are you doing on that one? Let's look at Matthew 7, verse uh, 12. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Wow. <laughs> Can you think of something recently that you did to somebody or said to somebody that you really <laughs> wouldn't want them to say to you? Or maybe you said something about someone and they weren't in your presence, and that kind of made you feel good about it, right? And you wouldn't want them to say that to you. I, uh, I challenged the pastor once about a racist joke he shared in a sermon. I'm not kidding you. He said, well, there weren't any of those people in church. <laughs> I said, well, why should that matter? Do to others as you would have them do to you. Yes, number six. It was read to you earlier. Love the, Lord with your, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. How are you doing in that from one to five? Love God with everything you have. Everything you have. Number seven, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But Jesus didn't stop there, did he? He went on. The night that he was arrested, the day before he was executed, he left us with one final commandment. One final standard, one final Jesus ethic. In John 13, 34, he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Friends, that's a high standard. How are you doing on that one? How are you loving people as Jesus has loved you? This would really transform our lives, wouldn't it? <laughs> to transform evangelism and our testimony. The way we respond to people <laughs> when they say things we don't like. Love one another as I have loved you, so that the world would know that I have come. We know that Jesus lived this way. And we know that Jesus' life and teachings was extremely attractive. The best scholars in the land sought his counsel. The worst scoundrels in the land sought his company. Blaise Pascal, a 17th century math, math, uh, mathemat, French mathematician, said this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? People arrive at their beliefs based on what they find attractive. And so here's the challenging question for you this morning. How attractive is Jesus in you? and in me. When I responded to that lady in that restaurant, Jesus wasn't very attractive in me. He, he just wasn't. 
Christianity was extremely attractive. Christianity is still extremely attractive. But what is it? What was it about Jesus that was so attractive? And, and, and if, if I had to sum it all up, and I'm going to I'd sum it up in one word, and we actually sang about it in this morning, one of, one of the songs, the song leader led us, I'm not sure of his name, in his closing prayer actually mentioned the word grace. Grace. Responding to someone in a way that we don't in our humanity feel like they deserve it. <laughs> That's grace. When we think they deserve a tongue lashing, <laughs> we exercise grace. The cousin to grace is mercy. We sang about that this morning too. When we deserve punishment and God doesn't give it to us, that's mercy. When God gives us a blessing and we don't deserve it, that's grace. Grace in Jesus and mercy in Jesus was extremely, extremely attractive. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, and if you haven't read it, you need to. It's a fantastic book. It's about 35 years old. You can probably pick it up on Amazon for a dollar or two. It is a fantastic book. Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace. He says this, Those who deserved punishment got forgiveness. Those who deserved wrath got love. Those who deserved debtor's prison got a clean credit history. Those who deserved a stern lecture got a banquet of grace. Wow, that's good. Those who deserved a stern lecture got a banquet of grace. Do you realize that God has given you a banquet of grace? Not just a little morsel, but a banquet. When a Roman military leader who represented one of the most oppressive regimes in all of history comes to Jesus for help, Jesus doesn't give him a lecture. He doesn't berate him about their oppressive system. What is it that Jesus does? Jesus heals his servant. When a woman caught in the very act of immorality was dragged before Jesus, what is Jesus' punishment for her? There is none. There's no condemnation. Jesus says to her, go home and sin no more. When a cheating, conniving, treasonous Jewish tax collector is raping his own people, what is the justice that Jesus meets out at him? Jesus says, come follow me. Come, come, come join us. When a brutal, violent, radical rabbi is brutalizing the church, what is God's measure of justice for him? He says, I'm going to make you my main spokesperson. I'm going to make you my primary leader to the pagans. When a man whose body is riddled with the worst fearful disease of the day, you talk about social distancing. <laughs> His skin is scaly, blood and pus is oozing out of it. And he calls out to Jesus, teacher, have mercy on me. What is it that Jesus does? He, he reaches out and touches the leper. What do we call that? We call that grace. Grace is what you and I crave when we've done something wrong. 
Grace is what we crave for when we're guilty. The life and teachings of Jesus was grace-filled. And it was attractive. How attractive is Jesus' grace in you? When the world sees Christianity abounding in grace, Christianity is attractive. The world is either drawn to Jesus in us, or the world is repulsed by Jesus in us. But what about those Romans? What about their brutality? What about those hypocritical religious leaders? Philip Yancey again says, Grace is the only force in the universe powerful enough to break the chains that enslave generations. But what about? But what about? But what about? No, Jesus says, Love as I have loved you. So we look to Jesus, right? And sometimes it's unsettling because those groups and those peoples and those Romans and those Pharisees, we want to tell them, give them a piece of our mind. We want to call them on the carpet. We want to hold them accountable. And Jesus isn't saying you don't hold people accountable. But how you do that either draws people to Jesus or chases them away. So there's a little phrase that Jesus used, actually a couple of verses that Jesus uses in Matthew 7, where, where we can kind of gauge ourselves in responding to people when, when we're kind of irritated and mad and, 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 and we've been challenged. Jesus asks a soul-searching question that we ought to consider when we're pushed and pulled in different directions. In Matthew 7, verse 3, Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because they've got a speck in their eye. Right? And that's our tendency, isn't it, as humans, to see the speck in someone else's eye. Because it's easier to do, to see your speck, than to look at my speck. It's more comfortable Jesus says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log in your own eye? Well, how dare you insinuate that I've got a log in my eye? You might have a speck in your eye. It doesn't mean I've got a log in mine. <laughs> but why is it that we as humans tend to be so focused on their faults his issue, her lifestyle. <clears throat> I'll tell you why. Because he's a Democrat. And he watches CNN all the time. And that's not a speck, that's an entire forest. <laughs> well, she's a Republican and she wants to take away and you'll fill in the blanks. That's not a speck, that's an entire lumber yard. Jesus says, love, as I, as, as I have loved you. 
But this gets much more personal, isn't it? I spoke to my father yesterday. I spoke to my sister this morning. She's in England. Her and I, we're going to meet up in South Africa in June and visit my father. And she was telling me this morning, and I feel these same sentiments. She says, I am angry at COVID. <laughs> and this gets very personal when we're dealing with specs and logs and accusations and guilt and sin. And some of you might say, well, you don't know what they said about my family and how that destroyed our business. That's not a speck. And you don't know what that uncle did to me. He didn't introduce me to the mysteries of sex. No, he, he introduced me to the miseries of sex. That's not a speck. And what about those people? Do you, do you know what those people did to my people? That's not a speck. Don't tell me to ignore that. Jesus isn't telling us to ignore that. Jesus is telling us when you point out the speck in someone else's eye, be sure that you're seeing that through the prism of your own eye and what's in your own eye and what's in your own life. And do that when it's soaked in grace from Jesus. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 4, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? And then in verse 5, Jesus drops the H word. <laughs> we don't like this word, do we? Jesus says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The grace of God operating in our lives compels us to look introspectively before we look at someone around us. The grace of God operating in my life compels me to make sure that my life is in order before I dare judge someone else's. The grace of God operating in my life compels me to make sure that my yard is tidy before I fuss at a neighbor for his beat-up old truck sitting in his driveway. There's an amazing example in Scripture of grace in action where the church opposed it. And I want to share this example with you, but I need to set this up. I'm feeling a little bit anxious about time. How are we doing? I didn't bring a watch with me on purpose because I didn't want to be focused on time. Are we good? Okay. <laughs> this happened about eight years into the New Testament church. The church is going well. Things are happening. It's not perfectly easy sailing. There's been some issues going on, but for the most part, the church is just growing and growing and growing. And then God calls one of the church leaders to do something that was extremely revolutionary. And if we were in the church and if we heard that our leader was about to do this, we would get a check in our stomach and we would think, oh my goodness, I hope this works. I was an associate pastor of a little church in North Carolina. And uh, when I was going through the interview process, a couple of people in the church went to the senior pastor 
and they had a concern about me coming to the church. And their concern was this, Pastor, we're concerned that that preacher from Africa you're bringing in here, he's going to attract black people to our church. Yeah. Conservative evangelical church. Could there be something worse than that? A few months into my stay at that church, a lady came, visited our church, and, and we were all excited because we were just a little church, and yet this new lady comes to visit the church, and during the week I called on her, and she said, well, I really, I really came to check you guys out and to know and to see if it would be safe because, because I've got a biracial daughter. And I want to know if she'd be safe in your church. And I assured her she would be, but there was this, this reaction inside me, I hope this works. Isn't that tragic? Isn't it tragic that somebody would come and want to check out your church to make sure that their biracial child would be safe? But you know what's more tragic than that is that there is a history, right? Of churches where they may, might not be safe. And within that setting, we arrive at Acts chapter 10. And God has called Peter to go and do something that's going to shake the foundation of the church. It's going to cause this church to think about the gospel in a whole new way. It's going to stir them. I don't want you to underestimate how difficult this was in the New Testament church for what Peter is about to do. Peter was in Jerusalem. He traveled northwest to a little town called Lida or Lida. Then he goes on to the coast to a town, of, town called Joppa, and he's in Joppa. About two days travel north of Joppa is the town of Caesarea, and that's where the story starts. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to, to God. Now, we know nothing about Cornelius other than this passage. He was, he was a soldier. He was in charge of 100-plus men. Uh, he's Italian. That's the only time in Scripture that word is used, Italian. He's a Roman soldier. He represents the oppressive regime, right, in Israel. Um, he tells, the Bible tells us that he feared God. We don't know the context of that fear. Was he attracted to monotheism? Was he a convert to Judaism? It's possible. And, and, and God tells Cornelius, says, Cornelius, there's a man down in Joppa. You need to send for him. And so Cornelius obeys. Well, the next day, Peter is in Joppa, and he's having a little afternoon nap, and he has this vision. And in this vision, there's this sheet, or like a top, that's lowered. And inside this top, the this, this sheet, is all kinds of unclean animals, clean and unclean animals. Reptiles, and shellfish, and crab, and, and, and shrimp, and camels, birds. And God, in the vision, says, Peter, get up and eat. And three times, Peter says, I cannot. And in this vision, there's this wrestling going on in Peter's life. And God is saying, Peter, you need to do this. And Peter's saying, Lord, I cannot. And God is saying, Peter, you need to do this. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be uncomfortable. Peter, you need to do this. 
And God is saying, and Peter is saying, Lord, I cannot. Don't underestimate how difficult this was for Peter. Centuries of tradition, centuries of legalism, centuries of ritualism is causing this conflict in Peter. And then God says, Peter, there's going to be some guys knocking at the door. You need to go with them. The next day, Peter's on the road, heading up to Caesarea. Cornelius is waiting for him. Cornelius has gathered his family, gathered his friends. And Peter actually tells Cornelius, I'm not going to read it to you. You can read it in the passage. Peter actually tells Cornelius, do you know how difficult it was for me to be here? And there's a Jesus moment. <laughs> oh, a wonderful Jesus moment. God's spirit comes on that household and Cornelius gives his heart to the Lord and the household gives their heart to the Lord and heaven's rejoicing, right? A sinner has come home. The church should celebrate too, right? Not yet, pastor. You went where? You went to the home of that pagan Roman? Do you know what they did to my people? Do you know what he represents? You went where? Do you get how difficult this was? And what an amazing act of grace God exercised that day. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Now, this is a group within the church, right? This, we're, we're not talking about the Pharisees. We're not talking about some group outside the church. This is, this is coming from inside the church. The circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. <laughs> yeah, I did. What next? Are they going to come into our church? Really? Are you going to attract them into our church? They're going to take over. They always do. <laughs> Look at verse 17. Acts chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You know what we call that? We call that grace. We call that grace in action. When they heard these things, they felt silent and they glorified God. They celebrated. They got it. They got the message. What a wonderful story. What a wonderful story where, where, where it almost seems as if the church was kind of on the brink there. <laughs> a gut reaction. I hope this works. And grace won. The grace of God won. I wish I could say that that story solved the Jewish-Gentile problem forever. It didn't. I wish I could say that that incident there in Acts 10 and 11 and Peter's boldness solved the male-female-gender-sexist issue forever. It didn't. I wish I could say that this story solved the race issue, even within the church. 
It didn't, sadly. It comes up again, just four chapters later, Acts chapter 15. It comes up again, Acts chapter 21. It comes up again, the book of Galatians. And throughout church history, we've got the Protestants and the Catholics. We've got the liberals and the conservatives. We've got the reformed and the Arminians. We've got the happy clappies and the... What's the opposite? I don't know. <laughs> My way, your way. Where is grace in all of this? So let's go back to Hebrews 12. And then just as an illustration, I want to touch on Luke 10, and then we're going to be done. I want to read these verses again. Within the context of what I shared with you, look at Hebrews 12 again. Verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, do you think people are watching you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Years ago, um, I preached on the subject of joy. In fact, Pastor Greg in the former church was preaching a series on joy, and he asked me to preach one, one Sunday, and I preached on joy. And then my daughter got a fine a ticket, and it was a big ticket, a speeding, and um, I had to go to help her went to the courthouse, and I was getting frustrated because she's an adult, and she should take care of this, and I went to the courthouse, and the lady that was helping me could see that I was frustrated. She says, well, are you having a joyful day today? <laughs> she had been in the service that Sunday. You think people are watching us? Oh, yes. You think people are judging Jesus based on our lives? Oh, yes. So the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, whatever that weight is. What is, what is that weight? What is, what is that thing that those people did to you? What is it that that person, that family member did to you? What is it that that group represents? What is that sin that trips you up? Put it aside, because it's not going to go away unless you deal with it. It's going to be there, it's going to nag at you unless you confront it. Let us also lay away every weight and the sin which clings so closely. It's another version says it entangles us. <laughs> and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. God has a wonderful journey of grace for us to walk. Look into Jesus. Look into Jesus. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed or strengthened. Strive for peace with everyone. Everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will ever see the Lord. And yes, verse 15 again, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. To exercise grace. 
to practice grace. So there's a story in Luke chapter 10. We'll wrap up with this. Why is it that Jesus used a Samaritan as the hero in the story? Why is that? Why not a Jewish lady? Why not a Jewish widow? Why not a little Jewish kid? Why not a Pharisee who came to see the light and became the hero? No, Jesus uses a Samaritan as a hero of the story. The The outcast group. The group that the Jews didn't want anything to do with. And so Jesus tells a story. There's a man going down the road and he gets beaten up and he's bleeding and dying in the ditch. And along comes the one religious worker, checks him out, walks on the other side. I'm busy. I've got things to do. I've got places to go, bills to pay, meetings to attend to. Another religious guy walks down, sees the guy bleeding and dying in the ditch, and he crosses on the other side. I'm not going to mess with this. And then the Samaritan comes along. The Samaritan who's got a history, right? A Samaritan who who has got all of this baggage, supposedly, and sees this Jewish guy lying in the ditch. And the tendency might be to go and kind of help him along, just kind of put the boot in. But no. Jesus says he picks him up and and bandages his wounds up and cares for him and shows him what? Grace. (laughs) Undeserved favor. Puts him on his donkey, takes him into town, pays for him to, to, to be in this nice, lavish hotel. Well, they didn't say that. It was an inn. And then at the end of the story, what is it that Jesus tells us to do? What is that phrase? He says what? Go and do likewise. And so this week, something's going to happen, right? Something's going to happen. Someone is going to fuss at you in the store. Somebody is going to take longer than they should. Somebody is going to cut in front of you in traffic. Maybe it's going to be bigger than that. Maybe there's going to be something that's, going to, that's a little crack in your armor that's going to pull wide open. And God is saying, go and do likewise. Be an example of grace so that people would find grace in you attractive. So that people would find Jesus in you attractive. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. There's not going to be any closing music or song, but I do want to have just a minute of silence as you allow God to challenge you. Forget about what I've said. Just focus on God's words about being a peacemaker about turning the other cheek, about loving others as he has loved you, about doing to others as you would want them to do to you. And right now, God's Holy Spirit is exposing things inside of us. Talk to the Lord about them.
Father, your word has challenged us this morning. You've told us that it would. And we're thankful for it. Your Holy Spirit, Lord, is speaking to us not only about things that happened yesterday or last week or 10 years ago, but your Holy Spirit is speaking to us about what will happen this week. And we know that your strength is sufficient for us. We know that Christ in us can bring hope of glory, as Paul said in Colossians. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when the way that we respond, the way that we treat others, the way that we talk about others is not attractive to the world. Forgive us. Help us, Lord, to be sensitive to your spirit. When you check our spirits, help us to, to stop mid-sentence, even if it means that we get embarrassed and tell someone, sorry, I shouldn't be talking like this. Give us the courage to go back and apologize when we mean to someone. Give us the courage, Lord, to, to go back and confess something or a grudge that we've held for years. Help us to do and speak as you would. Help us, Lord, to exercise grace this week. We pray for Pastor Greg, pastor, friend, our leader, mentor. Pray that you would give him strength, Lord. Restore him to full health. Pray for his family. I pray for this pastor that was mentioned this morning, that you would give them strength and help them to recover. Lord, I pray for my father, even now, that you would touch his body. Help us around the world, his children, as we walk these days. And for each family represented here this morning, Lord, we thank you for them. Give them a measure of grace over lunch. Give them a measure of grace as they go through this afternoon. Give them grace as they live out a daily life, day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. Bless each one, strengthen them, Strengthen us all, Lord, as we go. We ask this in the gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.